Uh, back in the late 80s, a Christian song came out with the unlikely title, Lord, Please Don't Send Me to Africa. It was a humorous song poking fun at the way that we as Christians all too often think. We have this strange notion about God that he wants to give us some unseemly task to do or that he wants to take away some good thing that we are already enjoying. Now that attitude arises because we don't know our God very well. I'm not saying that there may not be some truth in those thoughts. What I am saying is that because we don't know our God as well as we should, we fear those things or we fear them more than we should. God loves us and he wants the best for us, the greatest good for us, even if that means that we must do some task or which we would have never ourselves chosen to do or even if it means giving up something that we dearly love. Nothing must have such a great hold on us that even God is not allowed to take it away. And yet only if we knew God as we should, we would know that he would never do such a thing arbitrarily or without reason. Uh, Does he ask such things of his people? Yes, I'm afraid he sometimes does. He may ask of us to do the very thing that we fear or to give up the very thing that we don't want to lose. But he would only ask some such thing of us for our own good. Always it's for our good and the good of others. This morning, we're going to look at someone whom God asked to give up the very best that he had. And the manner of that giving was excruciatingly hard. So if you have your Bibles, I'd ask you to turn with uh, me in them, please, to Genesis chapter 22. uh, And verses 1 through about 5, I guess it is, or through 13. And of course, the text will be up on either side of me on the screen. Uh, We're going to look this morning at Abraham and what God asked of him. This was not the first thing that God had ever asked of Abraham. When Abraham was an old man, God told him to leave his country, his family, and his people. He dwelt as a stranger in a foreign land in order to follow God. He risked his life in Egypt and in other places also as well as the promised land itself. And yet God blessed Abraham in the midst of all of that. But the greatest burden of all was that he and his wife Sarah were childless. It was the great ache of his heart. And yet, even in this, God blessed Abraham. When they were past the age of childbearing, Abraham being 100 years old and Sarah being 90, they had a child, an heir in his old age, his son Isaac. And it was some time later that God asks Abraham for the best that he has. He asks him for his son. Then God said, take your son, your only son whom you love, Isaac, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on the mountain I will show you. What kind of thought? 
must Abraham have had? Why not ask him for his own life? That would be easier to give than this. Abraham was already an old man, and as much as anyone is ever prepared to, he was prepared to die. But his son, his son was just a young man. He hadn't tasted of life yet. All Abraham's hope was in his son, and God asks him for Isaac, for his joy. And if God wants him, why not just take him? I mean, Abraham wouldn't be the first man to lose his son to death, even the son that he loves, even his only son. Many men have known that grief. But to have to sacrifice his boy, to kill him with his own hands, to snuff out that life that he'd taken so much joy in. How could God add the universe? How could he ask that of him? And we might well ask the same question. How could God ask that of any man? Isn't it immoral? Wouldn't Abraham be immoral for doing such a thing? Well, I'm afraid we're going to have to wait for a while before we can answer that. But Abraham couldn't wait. These same questions were spinning around in his mind. And for him, it wasn't merely academic. It was his son who was at stake. He had to act. Either he would refuse or he would obey. He chose to obey. Verse 3. Early the next morning, Abraham got up and loaded his donkey. He took with him two of his servants and his son Isaac. And when he had cut enough wood for the burnt offering, he set out for the place that God had told him about. Can we imagine ourselves in Abraham's shoes? I mean, all around him were people sacrificing things to their gods. Some even sacrificed their children to those gods. Such things were known in Ur, the city that Abraham was from. How was Abraham to know anything different? Abraham made his preparations. He, he took the first step down that awful road. He had the wood, fire for the offering. He took his servants. His son Isaac was with him, and he started out. But he couldn't uh, accomplish that bizarre deed immediately. Maybe it would have been easier to have had to done the sacrifice right there at his home. Instead, there was time to think. He had to travel a long way before he could come to the place where he was to sacrifice his son. Maybe on the trip he would change his mind. Maybe he would determine that he hadn't really heard the request properly. Maybe he would think that the real test was to see whether or not he would refuse to do such an immoral thing. That God wanted him to pass the test by saying no. And as he traveled, he thought about his relationship with his God and to his son. Then off in the distance, he sees the place where he's to sacrifice Isaac. Three days he thought about what God told him to do. Yet it's not too late. He can still turn back. What will he do? Verse 5 tells us what he did. He said to the servants, stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. It must have seemed almost like a dream or a nightmare 
First, God tells him to do something that appears to be immoral, as well as robbing him of his greatest joy in life. He's made the preparations. He's traveled for three days, and now he can see the place where he's to kill his son. What kinds of things might have been going through his mind? If I turn back now, I'll never go on. But, but if I go on, there's still time to turn back to change my mind. Did he think such things? Surely some such thoughts like that must have gone through his mind. But he goes on. And now it's just him and his son. There's no animal. There are no servants. Nothing but Abraham and his son, his only son, the son that he loves. And if Abraham was troubled, the young man Isaac was also. He was part of that same culture. He knew about human sacrifice. And his concern shows in the last part of verse 6 and 7. As the two of them went on together, Isaac spoke up and he said to his father, uh, Abraham, Father? Yes, my son Abraham replied, The fire and the wood are here, Isaac said. But where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Isaac breaks the silence. He's worshipped with his father often enough to know that this kind of worship requires, demands a sacrifice, and they don't have one. Earlier, he may have wondered about this, but then there was a donkey, and, and, and even the servants never had any such thing been sacrificed by his father before. But how could one know what would happen? Maybe that was the reason for his father's ominous silence as they traveled. But now they walked up that hill alone. And, and if it pained the son to ask the question, it pained the father to give the answer. Verse 8, Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them went on together. God had provided Isaac to Abraham, had Abraham's answer is tender, evasive, and by now, surely the young man Isaac must have sensed the truth. One commentator says that that short, simple sentence, and the two of them walked on together, covers what is perhaps the most poignant and eloquent silence in all of literature. As they walked up that mountain, what did they think? Abraham had called Isaac his son two times, words of, of great tenderness and endearment in that society, but he was going to sacrifice him. And if he did turn from it from the last minute, he still went this far. He, he at least considered it. If he did love him, then he must have loved God better. Well, did he? Did Abraham love God more than his son Isaac? Do we love God better than we love anyone or anything else? I have to tell you, I find that question is almost impossible to answer. Theoretically, we, we would say, yes, we ought to love God more than anyone or anything else. But how does someone measure their love for God? How, how do we determine that we love God better than we love anybody or anything else? Do we have to kill the things we love in order to prove that we love God better? 
And what if we do love God better than we do anyone or anything else? What does that show about our love for God? What if we don't love anyone or anything else? Or we love them poorly? Then, then just what does a love for God like that amount to, even if it is better than all other loves? You know, I am not sure that God has ever told us to limit the amount of our loves, although we are not to love anything more than God himself. When he tells us to love our wives or our brothers or our children or even our enemies, what limits has he set on that? You know, I think God wants us to love all other loves with a passion. He's not jealous that I love my wife with all my heart any more than I'm jealous that my wife loves our children with all of her heart. What's important is that we love only God with a love that is due only to God. If I should love another the way I love my wife, then my wife should be jealous and, and I'm in the wrong. And if anyone should love something with the love that is due only to God, then they sin and God will jealous, but not, I think, otherwise. Of course, we say, and we believe, that we ought to love God better than anyone or anything else, but I don't know how you practically measure that. You know, the New Testament measures our love by God, by our love for others. And if we're to love God passionately, then we ought to love others with a like yeah, you know, I'm convinced that this passage isn't solely about whether Abraham uh, loved God better than he loved Isaac, although we often explain it that way. It certainly doesn't exhaust its contents. But Isaac must have wondered such things as they walked together in silence on their way up that mountain. And then they were there. What would they do? Would Isaac run? Would Abraham turn from the commandment to sacrifice his son? Would he call the act immoral and refuse? Well, verses 9 and 10 tell us. When they reached the place God had told him about, Abraham built an altar there and he arranged the wood on it. He bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. And then he reached out his hand and he took a knife to slay his son. And Abraham was called the father of the faithful. I'm not sure I'd want the title. What would we do about someone today who tried to do what Abraham did? How would you answer a man who came to you and said that God commanded him to sacrifice his son in order to demonstrate his great faith? What would you say? Well, what would you say to someone who came to you and said that he was the Christ and that he was sent to be the Savior of the world? You'd not think that any such person would have any faith at all. You'd think he was rather a lunatic, wouldn't you? But why didn't people think that Jesus was an lunatic when he said those things? I mean, many people have said things about our Lord, but few have ever accused him of being a lunatic. Even his worst critics don't make that charge. Because 
the whole tenor of his life matched his words. And the same thing was true of Abraham. His life matched his words. He had demonstrated great faith in the past in his life, had the fruit of a relationship with God. Any man who came to us today with such a claim would not have that kind of life that would cause us to think he had heard from God at all. But I can tell you that even if such a man of great faith were alive today, that he could say absolutely that God would give no such command, that to sacrifice another human being would be immoral. But you see, we have something that Abraham didn't have. We have the end of the story, verses 11 through 13. But the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Do not lay a hand on the boy, he said. Do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. And Abraham looked up, and there in the thicket was a ram caught by its horns. And he went over and he took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. God had provided. God had shown by his action that the sacrifice of one human being by another was not acceptable to him and never would be. And we know that. And we know that from other places in the scripture that such an act is immoral. But Abraham didn't know. I mean, he did the best he could in the situation. And he did know God. He knew that God had given him Isaac, and more importantly, God had given him a specific promise that it was through Isaac that his family was to come, and they would number like the stars in the sky and like the sand on the shore. And so as Hebrews tells us, Abraham believed that God would raise him from the dead if he had to sacrifice Isaac. Now, back in verse 5, though we didn't read it then, when Abraham told his servants to wait uh, while he and his son went up on the mountain, he also said, we will worship, and we will come back to you. Abraham did not know how Isaac would be delivered. He only knew he would be because he trusted God. The ordeal was over. Abraham had been tested. He passed. His son would return home to him and to his mother who was waiting at Beersheba. You know, if you and I were to have lived in another day before Jesus had come, we would have seen this story as a testimony to Abraham's great faith, and it is. But there's more to this story than just Abraham's faith. You know, we can't look at this story today without seeing that something more. And the something more which we see is a picture of the cross. Look with me at verse 6 again. Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and placed it on his son Isaac, and he himself carried the fire and the knife. You know, Isaac may have been the first sacrificial lamb to carry the wood which he was to be put to death on, but he was not the last. Jesus also carried his cross on his own back as he walked to that hill of Golgotha, the place of his death. And God the Father was consenting that he should die. 
Abraham was told to go to the area of Moriah. That's really interesting. Mount Moriah was the place where the temple was built, and Golgotha was right next to it. Is there any doubt that that was the place where Isaac took Abraham? Certainly, I mean, I mean Abraham took Isaac. Certainly it was. No one but God could engineer this picture down to the very place of the sacrifice of his son. And then, although no human can offer another human as a sacrifice, God can offer Jesus, because that's why he was sent into the world, to be the sacrificial lamb, and Jesus could do that work. So God gave this one-time commitment to Abraham, a man of great faith, to go to the region of Moriah in order to give us some small picture of what God the Father and God the Son intended to do. And the two of them, the Father and the Son, went on together. We learned something else about the cross from this picture. We, we learned something about the commitment of God to us. Look again at verse 12. Do not lay a hand on the boy. He said, do not do anything to, to him. Now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. Abraham showed his commitment to God by not withholding his son, his only son whom he loved. And God shows his commitment to us in the same way. He did not withhold from us his son, his only son whom he loved. You know, God said he knew Abraham feared him. He didn't say he knew Abraham loved him, although Abraham no doubt did. But fear belongs to God only. We're to fear nothing and no one else but God alone. See, Abraham loved his son, and he feared and loved God. He didn't fear his son, and he didn't love God as he did his son. He loved God the way he should love God, and that means to obey him even when we don't understand even when it breaks our very hearts. You know, as I said before, it's, it's hard to make judgments uh, about the relative amounts of our love, isn't it? I mean, if Abraham gave his son to God because he loved God more than he loved his son, does that mean God gave to us his son because he loved us more than he loved him? Certainly not. God the Father loves the Son the way the Son should be loved, and he loves sinners the way sinners should be loved. But to love us, he had to give us his Son. The story of Abraham should be an inspiration to our faith, not because of Abraham alone. He shows us the heights we can reach, what we can aim at, but, but even he didn't get there overnight. It took a, a long time, longer than most of us can expect to live. More important than Abraham's faith is God's faithfulness. We see in the story of Abraham, we see from the light of the cross. We're inspired by God's great commitment to us. He gave us the best that he had. And after all, Abraham wasn't looking at another patient's face when he reached the place he did. He was looking at God trusting in God and believing in God. Now, does it strike you as strange that we're talking about this on Father's Day? You know, there's a reason for it. 
you see, this story of Abraham helps us to understand something else also. It helps us to understand the effect our faith has on others, especially those closest to us. Isaac learned his faith from his father Abraham. You know, when uh, he was going to sacrifice Isaac, Abraham was already a very old man with the weakness of old age. Isaac, on the other hand, was a young man. The, the Hebrew word that's translated boy really means youth. And that culture could still refer to someone in the late teens and early 20s. Isaac was no mere child, and he was strong. I mean, he had to be to carry the wood for his own sacrificial pyre up that mountainside. But he didn't run. He, he didn't fight back. Rather, like Jesus, he submitted and he allowed Abraham to bind him and lay him on the altar. He had learned to trust the God of his father because his father trusted his God. That doesn't mean you have to be without sin. And if you pretend to your children or anyone else that you're better than you really are, They'll see through you as a hypocrite, and you'll be teaching them that your faith is a sham, and it reflects poorly on the entire faith. What it does mean is that when you sin, as we all do, you confess that sin, and you turn from it to the best of your ability. And then you'll teach your, something, uh, your children something they already know, and everybody else suspects that you're not perfect. But you will also teach them that God is at work in your life, that Christianity is real, and if it lives nowhere else in their sight, it lives in you. That matters. That matters to your children. It makes a difference to others. Real faith speaks for generations and through generations. My grandmother's faith still speaks today through her grandchildren who have all come to the story of Abraham in the light of the cross gives us an example to aspire to. It shows us God's great commitment to us. When he said his son. And it helps us to see the effect that our faith can have on others when we keep our eyes on dads. That's a good thing to know. And a better thing to try to live out. When we love God and others as we should, then when we face the great tests of our life, we can have confidence that we'll pass those tests and inspire others to pass theirs. And then all of our joys will become everlasting joy. To the glory of the God who loves us so that he did not withhold from us his son, his only 